0: G'day, everyone. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Dave. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at church. It's wonderful uh, to be together, isn't it? I want to begin today with a plea. Don't ever, ever, ever give up on anyone. Don't ever give up on someone believing that they are too far gone to be reached by the incredible gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Don't write people off. I'm sure for many of us, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, The people in our lives that we love and cherish could be a parent or a child, a a sibling, it could be someone at work, a friend, who over the years you've tried to witness to and share your faith with, you've invited them to things, you've invited them uh, endlessly. You've been met with just apathy or lethargy or disinterest or maybe even hostility and now you've reached the point where you think it's done it's over this will never change or perhaps and I think this one is particularly painful it's the person in your life you know who once used to call themselves a Christian but now no longer does and you think they're too far gone they can't come back No matter their circumstances or situation, however you've lumped this person or people together in your life, you look at them and you think about them, and there's a voice in the back of your head that says, it would take an absolute miracle for this person to be saved. And I want to say to you this morning that if you think that way, well, you're absolutely right. It would take a miracle to save them. But if you are here this morning and you're a Christian, if you love Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, it's that exact same miracle that has saved you. So never, ever give up on anyone. Don't write them off. The part of the Bible we're looking at today, Romans chapter 11, is theologically intricate. It's tricky and difficult. And um, I've spoken to some of you uh, who studied it this week and talked about it this week in growth groups, and it was a wonderful growth group on this particular passage. But even then, a lot of us have walked away going, wow, that's a really deep passage. There's a lot in here which is confusing. And it's therefore simple for us to be so um, confused, perhaps, or uh, distracted by what's going on in this passage that we can get wrapped up in details." Um, and lose sight of what's really going on. Now today, with both feet, we are delving deep into Romans 11, right into the intricacy and complexity. But as we do so, one of the things I'd love for you to hold on to is that despite its complexity, the message of Romans 11 is quite simple, the big, big picture. You see, the big picture of Romans 11 is that God's plan And God's purposes for God's people will always prevail. God is still saving souls. And there's no one too far away for him to reach. So as we get in the the midst of it this morning, remember that. Remember, that's really what's going on here. And in the middle of the complexity and intricacy is breathtaking majesty and beauty and awe. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, before we look at the passage itself, uh, we need to understand the context. Uh, context is everything when you're reading the Bible. Uh, but in Romans 11, it's going to go a long way to help you understand what's going on. Uh, the situation in this part of the Bible is that the author of the book of Romans is a man called Paul. And Paul has a Jewish heritage. Uh, he was raised as a Jew, uh, but he is now a Christian, he's become a Christian. If you have a look at chapter 11 verse 1, you will see Paul refer to himself as an Israelite. Now that's a giveaway to something we're going to talk about a little bit later, um, but the word Israelite is an interesting word, it means the son of Israel, a member of Israel. But what's interesting is Paul actually isn't from the country Israel, he's from a place called Tarsus in Turkey. So why does he refer to himself as an Israelite? It's because that is a shorthand way uh, of saying, I am Jewish. I have Jewish heritage. I belong to the spiritual nation of Israel. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm Jewish. So Paul is Jewish by background and ethnicity, um, but he is wonderfully converted to becoming a Christian. Acts chapter 9 details what happened. Check it out later if you haven't seen it. So Paul becomes a Christian. He is saved by Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. Jesus is his Messiah. And after he becomes a Christian, Paul dedicates the rest of his life to being a missionary, telling other people the good news of Jesus. Paul tells Jew and Gentile alike, black, white, rich Paul, he doesn't care, he tells everyone. But one of the things that becomes clear that Paul references throughout his letters is that he has a secret, no, it's not a secret, a soft spot, a real heart for Jewish people, his his own people. And yet, despite that being the case, and despite Paul being really motivated to reach Jewish people, um, the spiritual situation of the Jews in Paul's day and today in ours uh, is very, very dark. Um, the Jews had received The news about God more than anyone else. They were God's chosen people that received the promises, the covenants, the patriarchs, the prophets and yet despite receiving all of those things, the Old Testament of the Bible is in large part one of the themes running through it concerned with the Jewish people's rejection of God. God is endlessly faithful, the Jewish people are often endlessly faithless and unfaithful and this culminates In the beginning of the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus is God's Messiah, prophesied about in the Old Testament to the Jews, but the Jewish people on large reject Jesus. They're in a place of spiritual darkness because they've turned away from God and rejected his Messiah. And if you've got a Bible in front of you today... If you do have a Bible with you, this is one of those weeks. Every week is one of these weeks. But this is really one of those weeks where heaven in front of you will be helpful. Or Google Romans 11. Come to chapter 10, verse 21. Because what you'll see is Paul give a description of the spiritual situation of the Jewish people. Chapter 10, verse 21. The verse before we're looking at today. Concerning Israel, he's talking about God. Yeah. Concerning Israel, he says, All day long... I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Dear friends, how easy is it for us to de-emotionalize God, to turn our relationship with him into a function? But look at this picture of God, this emotive picture of our Father in heaven reaching out his hands to his people. Now, I don't know what you do when you're rejected after reaching out to people. I don't know how you respond when you've tried to show people love and affection and they respond with aggression or ignoring or whatever. What I do is I generally get committed to rejecting them back even harder. That's just my parenting technique. Does that work for anyone else? (laughs) I'll show you. But praise him from whom all blessings flow, that our God, the one true God, is not like us. God doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on people. He doesn't write them off. And Romans 11 is the story, the unveiled plan of what God will do with the Jewish people. So that's the context and that's the questions we're looking at. What will God do next? What is his response to the Jewish people? Come to chapter 11, verse 1, and I want you to consider the first 10 verses first of all as Paul unveils the present situation. Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? So it's a fair enough question. Remember, he's reached out his hands. The Jewish people have rejected him time and time again. Has God rejected them in response? The answer comes back very clearly, by no means, continue verse 2, God did not reject his people. Despite their rejection of him, he has not rejected them. And over the next nine verses, Paul gives them personal and then historical evidence as to why and how this has not occurred. Firstly, personally, look at verse 1. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of of Benjamin. Paul is a Christian believer who has accepted Jesus as Messiah, Lord, and Savior. And in fact, all of the Jewish, all of the early church leadership were Jewish. Peter, Paul, James, John, Thomas, they're all Jewish. On the day of Pentecost, every new believer was Jewish in heritage. And of course, it goes without saying that our Lord and Savior, Jesus, was Jewish. So Paul is saying, my background is Jewish ethnically, but I am a Christian. I am a follower of the one true God. So God has not abandoned his people. Look at me, I'm here. And then he gives historical evidence. He goes back to the Old Testament of the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, He refers to the interaction with the great prophet Elijah. And Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, calls out to God and says, God, abandon the Israelites. They've they've turned their backs on you. There is none of them left. And yet verse 4, how does God respond to Elijah? No, Elijah, you're wrong. There's 7,000 left. There's a remnant. Verse 5. And so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. The word remnant is one that we need to get to the bottom of. The word remnant means small quantity. Paul is saying there is a small quantity of people who are Jewish in background who are still Following God, who have become Christians. He is calling them by, verse 5, grace. The same way that we have been saved, non Jewish Christians, by the unwarranted love and gi- uh, grace and mercy of God, is the same way they have been saved. A remnant, a small quantity of people with a Jewish background who are Christians. But then verse 6 and 7 paint the rest of the current scene, the rest of the present situation. That whilst there is a remnant of believers, there is also the remainder, the rest. Verse 6 and 7, we're told simultaneously that the vast majority of Jewish people who rejected Jesus in Paul's day and still today in our day, have hardened themselves towards him. The word hardened means God giving people up to their own stubbornness. Or as Paul quotes in the book of Deuteronomy just after this, they have eyes which cannot see. And so in the first 10 verses, we're given an overview of the current situation, which is both good and bad news. Good news, there is a remnant of Jewish people who follow the Lord Jesus, who are, who are Christians, Jewish ethnically, but Christians, who are following the one true God, the remnant, the small quantity. Bad news, then you still have the rest, the remainder, the majority, who are hardened in their hearts towards God, who reject Jesus as Messiah. The elect, justified by grace, and the rest hardened by God, despite receiving the patriarchs, the promises, the priests, the prophets, the kings, and on and on. You might have heard in the news recently that there have been several noticeable, notable Christians who have walked away from the faith. Have you heard about that recently? I won't say their names, but amongst them are pastors and preachers, evangelists, Writers, theologians, songwriters, YouTubes, bloggers, people who used to love Jesus, who proclaim the name of Jesus to other people, and yet somehow now saying they don't love him, who've become hardened. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, I've no doubt you too would have had this experience as well. Friends or family members who are once Christians who have fallen away, I don't think there's an experience quite as devastating as it. There was a man um, who took an interest in me when I was a teenager. He was from the church I was in, that I grew up in. I wasn't a Christian, but I went to church with my family. And this guy was older, he was an elder at church, a a leader in the church, and he was just a great guy. He took a real interest in me. I admired him and respected him, Um, really liked him. Everyone I knew liked him. He was very, very well thought of in the church. I didn't stay in touch with him, but over years I would think of him from time to time, particularly after I became a Christian, with gratitude for everything that he'd done. But it was just two years ago that um, a mutual friend called me and said, Dave, have you heard about John? His name's not John, but have you heard about John? Um, He's not a Christian anymore. He's given it up. And even though I wasn't in a relationship with this guy, it felt like the wind had been taken out of my lungs. Now that's just one story of many, many I could give you. As I said, I don't think there is quite a pain like this one because there's something in it where you feel, my goodness, not only has this person given up following the thing that I follow, but it feels like there's no way back, that this is it. They've cut themselves off. And I know, of course, that for many of us here, this is not theoretical. That for us, we have parents and spouses siblings and children, in that situation. And when we think about it, it makes us weep because it feels hopeless and helpless and we despair. And yet what we're about to see in Romans 11 is that even as devastating as this is, don't ever, ever, ever give up don't write people off, don't give up on people, because God can and does do anything, including bringing back people who once said they were Christians, including bringing back people who've walked away from that. You see, my friends, what we're about to see is that God is not only not just through with the remnant, the small quantity of Jewish people, He's also not finished with the rest. There is hope for the future, hope for them and hope for us. Come with me to the second section, verse 11 um, and verse 32. Verse 11 to verse 32 is chiefly concerned with the future. Um, the current situation we're in now, but also the future for us. Verse 11 begins with a question just like verse 1 did. Again I ask, did they, and the they here is the remainder of the Jewish nation, Nation, the spiritual nation of the Jews, the remainder of people who have Jewish uh, ethnicity, did they stumble so as to be so far to fall beyond recovery? In other words, is the case hopeless? Are they gone? The answer, not at all. Israel's fall is not total nor final. God has a plan for the Jewish people. And believe it or not... It's a plan that involves you, if you are a Gentile Christian. Now, let me just step out for a moment. The word Gentile is one you might not be familiar with. You might be saying, did that guy just insult me? Did he call me gentle? What did he say? The word Gentile means non-Jewish. So congratulations, you might not have ever known. That's a word. It's not a compliment or an insult. Gentile means non-Jewish. God plans to use you as a non-Jewish Gentile Christian in his big, big kingdom plan. Even if you have no idea about it. Now we're about to look at the part of Romans 11 which is particularly intricate. But stay with it. Have it in front of you. Because uh, there is a rare beauty and awe-inspiring majesty in what we're about to see. Have a look at verse 11 to verse 13. These words will be on the screen. Um, But listen along. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the Apostles, to the Gentiles. Now just, those verses will stay on the screen. These are really, really important verses. All of the Bible is really important. These are really important verses to unlocking what Paul is telling us here. There's many things said here, but I want you to focus on two things in particular. Number one, through Israel's rejection, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Look at verse 11, look at verse 12, because of their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles, who's the there? It's the Jewish people. He repeats the same thing in verse 12. Gentile salvation, Paul says, has been brought about by Jewish rejection of God. How has that happened? Well, there's two ways predominantly. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah who was sent to the Jewish people. He was sent to Israel and Jerusalem. He was rejected by the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people. And as a result of that rejection, he was crucified. Jesus was crucified on the cross. And it is by that action that any of us, the only way that any of us can be saved. Jewish rejection of Jesus led to Jesus' death, his subsequent resurrection By his death we are saved. Gentiles may be saved through what Jesus has done as a result of Jewish transgression. But also after that, after Jesus rose from the dead, the book of Acts in the Bible is predominantly concerned with telling us what happened next. And we have the picture of Paul, the guy writing this letter, and others going out to the world, the ancient world, and telling them about Jesus. What Paul would do is he would go to a new town and he would find the Jewish people there. He'd go to the synagogue or the big group of Jewish people and he'd start telling them the gospel. But what would often happen, more often than not, is they would reject him and then he'd go to the Gentiles. To give you an example, don't go there, I'll just read out for you. In Acts chapter 13, we have a picture of Paul and one of his mates called Barnabas and they go to a town in what is now modern Turkey, uh, and this is what happens. They, They go to the Jewish people, the synagogue, they speak, but the Jews reject them. Paul says this, Paul and Barnabas answered them, chapter 13 of Acts, verse 46, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. The Jewish people rejected the gospel, the good news of Jesus, And so the gospel was then taken to the Gentiles, and Gentiles, many of us, have heard it and accepted it. And those of us who are here today as born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are Gentile in ethnicity, are the beneficiaries, the inherities of that gospel, of this promise, of this ministry. We have been grafted by God from outside His family into it. To illustrate that point Have a look at verse 17 to verse 22. Paul gives us an illustration that involves two olive trees. The first olive tree is a cultivated one, one that's been looked after and pruned and and cared for. Now, that is an olive tree that represents the Jewish people, God's people. But next to it is another olive tree, one that is wild, one that hasn't been looked after, one that is unruly, probably a bit smelly. That represents us, the Gentile olive tree, Paul says in this metaphor that some branches from the cultivated tree have been ripped off and thrown to the side. That represents the unbelieving Jewish, the rest of the Jews. But in their place, a branch, a shoot, a twig from the wild olive tree, the Gentile tree, has been grafted into God's tree. Those are the believing Gentiles who are now introduced into a church which in its foundations is Jewish. I wonder, how does that make you feel? Let's be honest with one another. The truth is, for many of us, we're like, oh, okay, great, <laughs> awesome. My, the heritage of Christianity is Jewish. That's terrific, wonderful. But it's not meant to be that way. We're not meant to feel nothing about this. The reason Paul is amplifying it is because it is of incredible significance. The claim Paul is making, the truth he is speaking, is of incredible significance. Let me try and explain it. In 2011, uh, Prince William, I love talking about the royal family. As I said last time, they always make my family look good. I really like them. In 2011, Prince William married, who did he marry? C- C- Kate, Kate. Kate Middleton, great wedding, etc., etc. Now known as Princess Kate. I want you to imagine though a different scenario taking place. Imagine that the week before his wedding, William had jumped on a plane and flown all the way over to Sydney. Hadn't had to do quarantine or anything, though, just came straight out of the plane. Okay, got a taxi and took a taxi straight to King's Cross. While he was there, he didn't go to the famous Coke sign or a cafe, but he went to a brothel. At the brothel, he went to the scungiest room and there was a a young woman sitting there with track marks up and down her arms, a heroin addict. Prince William got on his knee next to her, pulled out a ring and said, I love you. I want you to be my bride and I won't take no for an answer and so he'd gotten her out of the brothel put her in the taxi got on her plane took her back to London kicked Kate out okay, and then was all set for the big day Westminster Abbey she walks up the aisle he's run at the end and then after they're married he says to all of the crowd and all of the world this is my wife she's part of my family now she will inherit all that I've inherited treat her as she is royalty. Now I put to you, could that ever happen? Could you imagine? Seriously, would that? You can't imagine. Except it has. The exact same thing but more is what's happened to every single Christian. If you are a Gentile Christian here today, the Bible says you have been plucked out of the depths of from the grave of your own transgression, not into God's family as a result of your goodness and your righteousness and your inheritance, but despite all of your sinfulness, and grafted into God's family. We are the beneficiary, like the Jewish people, of the patriarchs and the promises and the prophets and the covenants. We are saved by grace. And what that means desperately and urgently, to hear this for some of you this morning, is that when God looks at you, believer, knowing what you've done this week, knowing what you've done this week, the fight you just had in the car, he knows. You're yesterday, you're Friday. He is not depressed by you, he looks at you and says, You are mine, you are my child. that's how it should feel. How do we respond? Come to verse 18. Gentile believer, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. As Christians, we are not to be arrogant. We're not superior to Jewish Christians. We should be overflowing with gratitude that we have been grafted into this incredible heritage Indeed, we had to watch out for unbelief, because if God took off the branches of those Jewish people who did not believe, what will he do to us? So that's point one of those verses. Israel's rejection has led to our salvation as Gentile Christians. But just wait for point two. <laughs> point two is that Gentile salvation will be used by God to lead to Israel's restoration. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. They're going to be on the screen. Again, I asked, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Now, Remember, there is a a remnant of believing Jewish people who are Christians. This is not talking about them. They've already been addressed. This is talking about the rest, the remainder, the ones who have been hardened. Paul says, verse 11, did they stumble? Is their rejection of God permanent? No, it's temporary. It's a, a stumble. It's a stumble that has caused to bring salvation to us. And the end result of that salvation is that Israel will become envious. Not sinful envy, but a godly envy. And so here we're painted the incredible picture that Gentile people's faith and love for the Lord Jesus, our reconciliation with God as our King and our Father, will produce in Jewish people envy and envy that they do not know the one true God, that they are no longer following him. And in verse 12, that envy will lead to their full inclusion. In other words, God still has a plan for the Jews. And so Paul hits again, verse 23, back to the olive tree. Having spoken in, Having spoken of the grafting in of the wild olive branches, us, the Gentile believers, he now tells us that the old branches, the ones that have been cut off, the ones that were hardened towards God, they will be picked up and grafted back in to the tree. And not just a remnant anymore. Look at verse 25 and 26. This will be on the screen. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery brothers and sisters so that you may not be conCeited Israel has received sorry Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the gentiles has come in and in this way all Israel will be saved when all the gentiles who will become Christians have become Christian Verse 26, all Israel will be saved. And that's where we end today. Uh, So, I'm just kidding. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, I think we can find out what it means. I think the passage tells us. To get there though, let's clarify a few things that it doesn't mean. First of all, we know that nothing is said here or anywhere in the New Testament about a return of the Jewish people to the promised land of Israel. And in fact, verse 1, Paul refers to himself as an Israelite, yet he is not an Israelite because he is from Jerusalem. He's from Tarsus in Turkey and a Roman citizen, Debut. He's an Israelite because he's a son of the promises. This is not a reference to land. Now, in 1948... As some of you will be aware, Israel was re-established as a nation state, as a country, um, as after the Second World War and the, and the, the tragedy of the, of the Holocaust. Several Christians have taken that event to be tied directly into this passage, that the re-establishment of Israel as a country, as a United Nations recognized country, is somehow going to be directly connected to salvation. But I have to say that is not what a, a plain nor a deep reading of this text points us to, or indicates, there's no reference of land. Secondly, we know this can't just be a reference to the remnant. Have a look at verse 7. When Paul references Israel in chapter 11, verse 7, he's referring to the rest, all Israel. When he talks about the remnant of Israel, what does he call them? The remnant. So he's not referring to the remnant of Israel because he's distinguished them previously we also know number three that this is not a reference to the gentiles and the remnant creating a new israel now that's language that's used elsewhere but paul's not using that here the whole purpose of this chapter is to contrast and distinguish between gentiles and jewish people do you see that So he's not saying they're one and the same, he's saying there's differences here. Number four, when Paul says all Israel, well that's a a biblical term that's used hyperbolically in the sense that it's not meant to refer to every single member of the nation of Israel, every single person who's ever been. It's hyperbolic in the sense that it means the vast majority. In the same way if I say all Australia support the Australian cricket team. Well, not if you're South African, you don't, do you? Not if you hate cricket, which is crazy, but if you're any of those people, you don't. So, all means the majority. So, what does it mean? The Israel that will be saved, in verse 26, is the Israel that will be partially hardened, has been partially hardened, in verse 25. 25. This partially hardened Israel is distinct from the Gentiles, distinct from the remnant of believing Jews. So, what is meant here is a widespread turning of the Jewish people to salvation. Will this happen gradually over time or immediately in in one big revival? Well, we're not told. It actually points to a revival, a big moment, but it doesn't say that specifically. We're not told that detail. We're not told when, the year, or where, the place. And in fact, using the Bible in that manner, kind of trying to do long division with the Bible. And if I do that and I move that, then that's where it is. That's not the purpose. The Bible is not chiefly concerned, Romans 11 is not chiefly concerned with where or the year. The chief concern of Romans 11 is the how. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. Verse 27. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What type of salvation will the Jewish people experience? It is not a salvation that comes through following the law. It is salvation through faith in the deliverer, Jesus Christ This passage is telling us that before the second coming of Jesus, there will be widespread belief in the Jewish people, widespread salvation. You know, the New Testament authors um, understood Jesus to be the culmination of the Old Testament. He is the last Adam, the suffering servant, the son of David, the son of man, the faithful remnant, the ultimate prophet, the reigning king, the final priest... He is also the true Israel. Jesus, like Israel, is God's chosen one. Like Israel, Jesus came up out of Egypt. He passed through waters. He was tested in the wilderness. However, unlike old covenant Israel, Jesus never disobeyed his father in heaven. He always obeyed the command of his Father. Jesus walked to the cross in obedience to his Father and took the sins of both Jew and Gentile on the cross and rose from the dead so that whomsoever would call upon the name of Jesus, Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, well-behaved, criminal, educated, uneducated, Central Coast, Sydney, Israel, Palestine, whomsoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And in the Old Testament, people, the Jewish people, looked upon their citizenship of Israel for salvation. But now for us, for all people, Jew and Gentile alike, we can be saved through Jesus as Israel, bringing us citizenship not to a country on this earth, but citizenship to God's kingdom. Amen? Yes. Now there's heaps in here for us to grasp hold of and wrestle with and argue about and talk. There's three things I I want to suggest that are important for us to hold on to as we walk away uh, today. The first one is very pragmatic and very practical and very relevant to the current situation in the world, and that is that anti-Semitism is wicked. Anti-Semitism is being against the Jewish people. In the church of Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no room whatsoever for anti-Semitism. It is a wicked thing indeed that has plagued humanity for the past 4,000 years. The Jewish people have been the victims of the most grievous crimes against other people that is possible to imagine. It is wicked for that to happen, but it is especially wicked and ignorant for Christians to partake in it. We should love and value Jewish people. However, it's also sad and mistaken, I think, when Christians, in reaction to this anti-Semitism, in rejection of it in a good way, take Israel the country's side on every single issue as if Israel the country's side was God's side. I'm not saying you can't take the side of Israel in every political discussion. If that's your political opinion, that's absolutely fine. I'm not saying that's sinful, nothing like that. But it is erroneous in the extreme to believe that somehow God is calling you to do so, that somehow the current modern state of Israel, led by non-believing people, is God's country. As Christians, we must follow Jesus' commands to be peacemakers. People who love other people, regardless. For example, sympathy to Israel must never hide injustice and hatred and bigotry towards Arabic people. Ever. That's wicked. But nor should we therefore dismiss the injustice done by Arabic people towards Jewish people. We are called to think critically and clearly on these ethical issues. Of course, chief amongst all of these things, and currently, as you know, in the Middle East, there's problems happening at the moment, chief amongst all of these things is to understand that the most wicked form of bigotry you could imagine, the most wicked form of bigotry towards Israelis or Palestinians, towards Arabs, towards Africans, towards Australians, is refusing to evangelize them because you somehow believe that they don't need it. Let that never be who we are. Jewish people need to hear the gospel. So do Palestinians, so do the Lebanese, so do the Australians. even the New Zealanders need to hear the gospel. <laughs> Secondly, always remember, God has a plan. And God's plan and God's purposes for God's people will always prevail. And what that means is twofold. One, we should always trust God to never give up. Never give up on people. Would you consider with me the plan we've just heard? Let's, let's be honest with one another. This is not the plan you and I would ever come up with in a million planning sessions together. If, if it was our world, we would not do what God has done. It is not our way of thinking. And I want to say, praise God for that. This is God's plan. It's a mystery in that, not that it's mysterious, but that we would not have invented it. It's been unveiled to us. And it is astonishing and breathtaking and magnificent and majestic. And it involves you and me. We are part of something much bigger than ourselves. And it also means never give up. I became a Christian at the age of 28 After 28 years of evangelism and witnessing, and my family never gave up on me. It was envy. I wanted what they had that brought me back. They kept praying. They kept inviting. They kept witnessing. And I do not know who is in your too hard basket, but burn the basket. Who is on your list? Burn it. God's plan and purpose for his people will always prevail. So keep praying, keep inviting, keep sharing, keep going, keep going. Why? Because God is astonishing and you can trust him. Romans 11 finishes with what I think is one of the most staggering um, praise poet verses You can imagine. It's almost as if Paul has reached the end of Romans 11. He's been for 11 chapters unveiling God's plan. It's like a mountain. And he's got to the end of the mountaintop and he's like, (gasps) and he turns around and he looks. That's me halfway up the mountaintop, by the way. (gasps) And he gets it and he looks across everything that God has done and he reflects on it. Have a look what he writes in verse 33. Oh, The depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him, them? God's plan is not our plan and we thank God for that. But we get to be part of it. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And his people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy to us, your mighty mercy, that we, most of us Gentiles, could be grafted into your family, into your tree, could be saved, could have the privilege of calling you, Father. Lord, help us to understand that. Delivers new people. Delivers people who love our Jewish neighbors who seek to reach them with the gospel. People who love our Arabic neighbors and seek to reach them with the gospel. People who trust in your plan and your purpose. And we pray for those who have been in our two hard baskets. We pray, Lord, that you would renew in us our trust in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.